This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash africantech with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. A chance encounter with a fellow MBA student at the University of Cape Town led to Geis Kaperos co-founding social business software and collaboration company WiseTalk. This followed a slew of business successes that included helping to build South Africa's largest privately owned concrete masonry business and selling it off for a tidy sum to a JSE-listed company back in 08. Today, Geis and his team at WiseTalk are currently leading the charge on the continent to persuade companies to adopt social business software to achieve collaboration, open innovation, and communication objectives. This is African Tech Conversations. I'd like you to think back to the earliest fight you had in school. And I'm hoping there weren't many. <laughs> uh, do you have it in your head? I do. I do. Okay. So uh, I went to an all-boys Catholic school. Um, and my first fight was actually on my first day in standard six, which gives away a bit about my age, I suppose. Um, that's grade eight. Is that right? That's grade eight. Exactly. So um, very disciplined school. And it uh, it was cool at that time to uh, knee each other in the leg to see if you'd collapse in front of the school headmaster when you're at lineup. And unfortunately, I took it upon myself to do that to the heaviest set guy um, and didn't turn out too well for me, actually, because I was taken straight to the headmaster's office and given uh, a hiding. So uh, <laughs> that was my first uh, sort of altercation. Uh, and that was in standard six. The good old days of corporal punishment, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. Not so not so good, actually. And and I I think I know what you're talking about. Like you you someone standing straight and you you creep up behind them and you sort of knee them in the back of the knee and they sort of buckle and that kind of thing. Exactly that. Yeah. Very mature. Very mature. But you're in standard six. You're 13. What do you know? <laughs> and who was the? Oh, so you said it was a heavy set kid. Do you remember his name? Yeah, it was a guy called uh, Terry Burns. Yeah. Um, it it didn't run off too well for me on both fronts because he retaliated and then of course I was given the privilege of getting sent straight to the headmaster's office. So. I got beaten on two accounts, unfortunately. And where is he now? Do you know? Um, I think Terry lives in uh, Australia, actually. Yeah. We are actually Facebook friends. So, uh, yeah. It, it, we resolved our issues afterwards. Water under bridge. <laughs> Water under the bridge. Exactly. Exactly. Well, now, tell me a little bit more about that school, uh, that playground. I want to, you know, sights, sounds, the neighborhood, uh, where you grew up. Where was it? Okay, so what was really interesting about the school I was at, I was at St. Joseph's College uh, in Rondebosch, which was a Catholic school. Rondebosch in Cape Town? Yeah. In Cape Town. So what was unique about us was, of course, apartheid was, uh, was still very much part of our daily lives. Uh, the unique thing about our school was that we were completely multiracial, um, with the result was that we were unfortunately exposed to lots of bomb threats, etc., uh, etc. Et but we had an amazing class. I mean, my entire grade uh, involved 14 guys so uh, we became brothers it was an amazing journey obviously very uh, very strict because it was governed by the catholic religion quite strictly and um, but an amazing journey i mean i think we had a view to to where south africa is now very early on it's something i'm always very appreciative of um, but also we obviously got to and were exposed to the dark side uh, of apartheid on a daily basis which was obviously very sad um but I think it made us all realize that, that things needed to change. 
and we were we were blessed to be part of of a great bunch of guys. Um, I grew up in Constantia, which is in the southern suburbs of uh, of Cape Town, quite an affluent suburb, and um, had a great childhood. You know, it was just uh, it was an amazing mix of of uh, of education and and living in a great environment. I often ask this question. Uh, the kid we just spoke about, well, I just got in trouble. It's probably got a sore bottom, uh, <laughs> swollen eye, maybe. Uh, what did that kid want to be when he grew up and how have you sort of either totally not become what you thought or become uh, exactly that? Great question. Um, so I was never strong academically, it has to be said. Um, and I was not really uh, very popular. Um, but uh, one thing that happened, uh, you know, in about standard seven or standard eight, which is now grade nine or ten, was that I uh, I took up swimming, um, and very quickly it was something that I excelled at. So um, got my Western Province colours quite early on, actually within my first eighteen months of training, and of course then you get your honours blazer and all of those kind of things. So you suddenly become more of an in guy, I suppose. Um, as as far as a future plan for me was concerned. Um, I didn't really have one. My parents came out of Second World War Europe, um, and my dad became a very, very successful entrepreneur. Um, and I knew part of me was was going to be entrepreneurial. Being a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a misfit, but I, I've never really uh, worked well against um, being told what to do, uh, which has been good on some occasions and been bad on others. But I've really taken life as an opportunity to explore and to challenge oneself uh, through every step of the way, uh, which is exactly the current journey that we're on. So, You know what I find uh, in some of the entrepreneurs I speak to who grew up in an entrepreneurial sort of family, that kind of thing, one of two things either happens. Either they really are inspired by what they see in their folks coming up or they're put off by it. You obviously were inspired. What did your dad do? So my dad came to South Africa, obviously, uh, with very little. And over a period of time, he doubled in uh, property, uh, where he, he made a considerable amount of money. And then he went into dried flower export, which is where he made most of his money. And, uh, you know, obviously, being an entrepreneur, you you do tend to work exceptionally hard. So, you know, we didn't get to see a lot of him. My parents were in business together, but uh, I think it certainly gave us a view of, uh, you know, if, if it was successful, what could happen. Um but there's no doubt about it, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. You're either going to be entrepreneurial or you're going to be put off by it. I've never really been employed by somebody. I, I did try corporate for a period of 10 months after I sold my last business, um, which is something I, I definitely couldn't do. Um, but I think the – well, depending on the corporate, I should say. But I think the the view is that um, that I would definitely have, have viewed the entrepreneurial slant something more positively than, than negatively. Okay, so you have a, a wedding ring on, as I do. <laughs> yeah, so I met uh, I met my wife Caroline when we were eighteen, actually, um, and we moved in together shortly after that. Got married when I was can't mess this up in nineteen ninety six. Um, we have two great children: a daughter Alex at fourteen and a son of uh, eleven called Cameron. They're around about the age you got in trouble at school. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, they don't have corporal punishment anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're about the same age. Well, Alex certainly, yeah. So give them the same number of years and imagine they'll be sitting in this very room in another 20, 25 years talking about you. What do you think they're going to say? Uh, it's, that's a tough question to answer. I would hope they think I'm a good father and a good provider. I do know sometimes in myself that I'm not spending as much time with him as I should. And I hope that they realize that it's because of the future good of us as a family and and maybe, you know, through what I'm able to provide 
through the success of our business. I would think, yeah, the, the, one, the one thing possibly is that they would have liked to have spent more time with me. That being said, though, I do take... Uh, you know, I do take make a plan that I spend at least two good holidays with them a year. Um, so as short as they may be, but uh, and I've also sometimes got to curb my impatience. Um, yeah, but all in all, I hope that they think in twenty years' time that I gave well, my wife and I gave them a good grounding, a good education, and that uh, we provided as much as we could for what we had on on every level, on a, on a level of uh, support education and and guidance and so 14 this is crazy so we start the conversation uh, talking about your 14 year old self more or less right and now we we're talking about your children who are around about the same age what do you think what sort of advice would you give that 14 year old that um you may or may not have already given your your 14 your your current 14 year old or is the world so vastly different for your children as it was for you I think they are vastly different. In fact, I had a conversation with my daughter last night doing homework at 11.30 at night, and she said to me, Dad, you, did you work this hard when you were instead at six? And the answer to that was absolutely not. I think the pressure on kids today is is by an order of magnitude greater than what we had to deal with. Um, but the competition for them is also of a magnitude greater. So we've... Um, I tell them both to work very, very hard, and at the same time to enjoy, you know, to enjoy childhood. But oftentimes that's a dichotomy. So I do think there's a there's a great deal of pressure on children today uh, on an academic level to succeed. Um, but I have told them you've got to do what you love. You've got to do what you're passionate about. Um, you know, and obviously with my son, he's 11. I don't think he has a clear direction of where he wants to go, but my daughter in terms of her artistic capability and uh, in maybe in fields like what you're involved in is certainly something starting to, to bubble to the surface now. So, Thinking back, do you ever, uh, do, you, do you remember being under pressure to, to be a certain something from your parents? No, absolutely nothing. I think that uh, they provided me with a lot of freedom. I think, you know, I, the one thing obviously when I started excelling at, at swimming was, uh, was, was important from a support perspective because it was, it was difficult doing, you know, training at that kind of level and still doing, sp- uh, still doing work at school. Uh, but that being said, I, th- I think the fortunate thing was that I was never an A grade student. So I don't think there was much, you know, they, they never, they just wanted me to, you know, to, to go through the process and, and do the best I could. Um, that being said, I don't think I did the best I could, if I reflect on it, to be fair. You don't seem to be doing very badly right now. Yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, I think that the thing with being an entrepreneur is that you have to you have to take big risks, you know, and, uh, and stuff is often binary. It's either going to be extremely successful or it won't. And you've got to be you've got to be OK with the fact that that it may not be. But uh, I think my belief is if you surround yourself with a great team of people, you have a belief and passion in what you're doing. Uh, the chances that it becomes a one instead of a zero are much more or much greater. I think you might have answered the next question I have. I, I want to ask you what kind of entrepreneur you are. And by that, I mean, are you the kind of entrepreneur who needs to have an emotional connection to a venture, a passion for it uh, in order to pursue it? Or are you the type of entrepreneur for whom any opportunity, as long as it sort of delivers a, a great return, is worthwhile? No, I'm the former. Um, I think if you're going to do something... Uh, you have to have a passion for it and you have to have a fundamental belief in what you're doing. Absolutely. Uh, in my previous business, I think the reverse was true. I think on the, you know, I saw an opportunity, uh, you know, um, my dad helped in the beginning and, uh, and over time it became, became a very big business. Uh, you know, I had some great partners, but it was never, it was never done at the level of passion to what we're doing today. That's for sure. 
And is that the concrete masonry business? That's right, exactly, yeah. So let's let's explore some of that. I heard you, you know, I heard you speak some years ago, and you probably don't, <laughs> you wouldn't remember, um, but you had some really cool stories about what you learned from that business. Uh, there was a specific story I hope you can re- recall about learning from someone you didn't expect to learn from in that business. Do you remember? Lots of lessons to be learned still. Uh, talk about those lessons and also how you transitioned into something you did want to do. Great question. So I think the concrete masonry business was obviously, you know, it, it saw a gap um, and uh, in terms of the requirement for housing throughout South Africa uh, in the early 90s. Um, you know, it, it, it started off as a three factory or one to two factory operation and over an 18 year period became a, an 18 factory national operation. Brought on some private equity partners that helped us uh, expand dramatically during the mid 2000s. Then in 2008, we sold the business to a listed group uh, at a two-year earnout, and um, obviously learned a lot during that time. Uh, one of the things which happened immediately after we sold was that the National Credit Act was promulgated, and uh, you know our market tanked literally by 70% in 10 months. Um, so from going from being a very profitable business uh, to, to one that was losing a great deal of money, obviously didn't wasn't good news for our new shareholders and it also taught me a very valuable lesson about uh, you know hubris and ego uh, why do you say that firstly an earnout right if correct me if i'm right is you having sold the business but you're tied to certain performance standards before you can actually leave as the md or whatever yeah so we had uh, we had a share embargo we were issued with uh, a number of shares in that in that listed vehicle and uh, we could only sell those over a two year period and so, and then the ego thing. What, what, <laughs> what did you? Were you on top of the world? Is in, in, you know, untouchable, or so you thought? Yeah. So I mean, exactly that. I think you know, I was thirty six, thirty seven years of age when we sold. It was a large value transaction. Uh, suddenly, you think you're on top of the world, and then a few months later, with the National Credit Act being promulgated, you've you you identify the fact that you're never on top of the world actually. And if you ever think you are, you've got to be very careful about how. How are you going to deal with it? Um, and it was a very difficult time, I have to say. You know, to closing factories, we went from about 500 staff to about 350 in the space of 10 months. You know, you know I had people coming up to me about how they're going to, what they're going to tell their wives, and and how they're going to get through things. And it was a, it was a big wake up call. You know, and in at the, uh, during that time, obviously, I'd resolved that I, I needed and wanted to go, to go and do something. I've always had a a big passion for technology. Um, so I enrolled for an executive MBA program at the University of Cape Town, and luckily I was accepted. Um, so there are about 150 candidates that apply a year, and only about 35 or 40 are accepted. And you do this, you apply at a time when things aren't going so great. Exactly. So it was uh, it was towards the end of 2009. You know, I was certainly not uh, the poster child for the investor group that had bought us. And obviously my staff and my team around me felt uh, felt very vulnerable because of the financial situation of the business. Um, so yeah, we, I went and, and enrolled for the EMBA program and, uh, it literally changed my life. It just has a, it has a completely different view to how businesses and organizations and enterprises should operate, uh, specifically around, you know, the, it has, people need to, and organizations need to become more empathetic and that your people in your organization actually have a tremendous brain capacity and, you, you should you should utilize that you know and do it and build trust build uh, build an ecosystem of trust and by doing so we learned about a lot of methodologies uh, we had to take those methodologies and bring them into a work environment write about them look it's it's also a very 
it's an exhausting journey because over two years you you're literally spending about two or three hours every day for seven days a week uh, year in year out uh, studying learning writing it really provided a tectonic shift for me as a, as a human being but also in terms of what I knew I wanted to do going forward now the story that I remember you telling was one of using some of this methodology to basically take advantage of the intelligence that exists in every organization as far down as the guy who sweeps the floors and often how that gets ignored. You know, share that story. I, rec- I remember it sort of vaguely, but um, there's, well, there's one specifically and I've never forgotten it. Cool. So the methodology is called brain writing. And really what brain writing says is that your organization has this tremendous brain capacity. But because of the silos and hierarchies that exist in a business, oftentimes, you know, leaders in businesses and management think they have all of the answers to every question. Um, and because the silos that are pervasive in many organizations today, you don't get a cross-pollination of ideation. Um, so our business had gone through a massive route in terms of volume. And um, if I'd gone to my sales team and said to them, look, how do we resolve our sales issue? They would have said, well, we have to drop price. But in an oversupply market, that isn't going to help you because you end up uh, in a month or two's time, your competition is going to be selling the same volume as you are. And you're just going to be doing it at a lower price. So we finished module one. We had to write a paper on uh, on brain writing or any other methodology that we'd learned over the module. And I decided to close my operations on a Friday afternoon, obviously at my Cape Town offices. And I literally went from, uh, from shop steward right up to plant uh, operator, right up to my management team, uh, 64 people, randomly distributed those guys uh, over uh, teams of eight. And each person gets a sheet of paper in front of them with um, three rows and eight columns. And... Uh, first row is idea one, second row idea two, and third row idea three with the problem statement at the top. So my problem statement was how do we improve sales uh, for our business? And each person writes down three ideas. They rotate the page to the person on, a page to the person on their left uh, who then expands on those three ideas or writes three new ones. It's got to be done in complete silence, no conversation. Um, and at the end of that process, mathematically, you'll generate over one and a half thousand uh, answers to your question. Then each team selects democratically uh, the top 10 ideas and they then put those on post-its which are then presented to the broader team uh, in a workshop environment afterwards and the idea that won out at the end of the day um, by everyone was an 18 year old cashier in our business who'd said why don't we put our uh, simulated stone product which was a very high margin low low volume product ideal which we know is concrete pool copings and cobblestones and paver tiles etc and um we, she said, why don't we put a front page ad on Gumtree uh, for the product? And we did that. And at that time, it cost us, I think, 350 or 400 rand a week for the, um, for the ad. And over a four-week period, we generated over half a million rand in sales. It really showed me that, you know, this was somebody we would have never asked a sales solution out of. And it really started percolating to me uh, the potency of the human brain and what people actually, people in a business want the business to succeed. And if they're recognized for their, uh, you know, for their own small wins in the business to help the business, you, you're, going to, you're going to have a really cool collective. Uh, and over the next 10 months, brain rights started happening, you know, where my production team would ask sales and marketing to come in. My admin team would ask production and sales to come in. And slowly but surely, you know, the, the mood of the business uh, improved dramatically. Um, but also that the performance of the business started improving, uh, albeit slowly. And I really, that for me was a real nugget. And, you know, over the following 18 months, 
um, I, I really started looking at these these kind of methodologies of saying, you know, if your organization is faced with a problem, why do only a certain select element of that organization look to resolve issues? If there's a broader community of people, and if you assume your organization is like a community or a tribe, then w- then why not use that and, and you know share in the success collectively and obviously select and, and recognize individual performance? But I, I think that's the way businesses need to go. You know, I mean, my the prof who... Uh, who started the MBA program has has a specific view around that organizations have to become more empathetic. You've got you've got you employ people for their hands, but if you understand their minds and their hearts and you look to create co- cohesiveness around that, the productivity out of the hands improves, you know, all sorts of aspects and attributes change. Um and really that, you know, 2 years later was the launch of Wise Talk. You know, I think the reason um, that story stuck with me is because, I mean, I'd heard it a lot and also being, you know, busy with my own MBA and, you know, studying organizational behavior. A lot of this stuff stays on paper, you know, it's it's, it's, a, it's sort of academic theory. And I think the, when I heard you share that story, you know, the, the, this was the first time I'd actually heard it being applied in such a simple, but, you know, accessible, it wasn't sort of at the McKinsey level being rolled out across uh, an organization of 50,000, a GM or whatever, it was, you know, a rubber meets road. And so how much of that would now lead you into a tech play, you know, from concrete to tech? And, you know, how, how did that happen? A good friend of mine, David Duarte, is actually one of our lecturers. Um, you know, he's a, he's a well-known social media kind of guy. He said to me that we that I moved from bricks to clicks. So I think what, what I'd seen over specifically out of that initial empirical evidence was the power of these kind of systems methodologies. Um, and I really started taking a strong view on, you know, if, if this brainwriting thing was something that I could create – the limitations of brain writing was that it has to be specific to a geography. Uh, it had to be location on one specific location. And I thought to myself, well, imagine if we could create a software product that could literally ask to engage anyone in your organization at any given time on any device. Imagine what you could create, you know. And uh, I then met through one of my classmates who owned a software development business. I met uh, Gerard, who's my partner today. And uh, he'd already started some framework uh, with our lead architect at that, uh, who is now our lead architect, Vion von Jarsfeld. And um, literally within six months, we had a working prototype. And uh, Tom Ryan, our prof in our EMBA, saw us using it. And he says, look, you know, let's put this into the EMBA program. And literally for the last four years, that has been the de facto comms and collaboration tool inside the EMBA, EMBA program at the Graduate School in Cape Town. Um, so we knew we had something. And... Um, yeah, that was the start of our journey. And uh, wasn't there some other business, an online, offline transaction platform you started as well? Was that around about the same time? And is this, was that a totally different? Is that a totally different story? Totally different story. I started that actually uh, when I was nineteen. So uh, again, you know, my passion has always been around tech. Um, I saw a gap that at that time, when you still had the old dial-up with that very strong beeping sound, I realized that organizations. Uh, that had catalogs needed to, from time to time, upload and download uh, inventories. Um, and then at that time, obviously, there wasn't real time. There wasn't a real time cohesion. So I developed a platform uh, with some with some uh, partners, and that allowed that to happen. So, say for instance, Volkswagen head office would have an inventory on specific items, and instead of using those micro uh, dots that they used to have, uh, and say Volkswagen in Claremont, Cape Town 
would now need to f understand what the requirement or what the order quantities were or what the inventory quantities were, they could dial up at their instance and immediately download and upload files. Um, and within 24 months, I sold that business and I was concurrently then starting, the, you know, working in the brick business as well. So uh, it was interesting, um, you know, and uh, was very lucky to, you know, to, to make some money out of that initial sale. But at that time, you know, my focus was definitely around 90% around how the brick business would become, you know, would become the leader of its industry uh, in South Africa. And you sold to Sourcecom. I'm beginning to understand now the ego issues that you must have brought into the brick business and why you must have felt at that point in your time, in your life, you'd essentially experienced what's very rare even today in the tech world, an exit of any kind, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I can definitely see how that would sort of pump someone's ego up you know one thing in life is that uh if if you if you're going to revolve or revolve your life around ego th there's going to be a point where somebody's going to or something's going to happen to take you out at the knees so rather rather be a better human being i saw a classic thing the other day when i was i was actually in the middle east earlier earlier last week and uh one of the guys i was seeing had a had a poster up on the wall from einstein which says ego equals one over knowledge and I thought that was uh, I thought that was pretty cool and absolutely true, you know. That's brilliant. That really is. And so let's talk a little bit about Wise Talk. To my mind, you guys are essentially one of the only homegrown social media platforms that, that haven't just survived on the continent but have thrived. You obviously started the business at a time when I think it was one of the more popular things to try and dabble in in terms of tech. I don't know what is more popular these days. It's probably apps and and uh, hotel booking platforms and stuff like that. But what's at the heart of what makes your business work? So that's a great question. I think, you know, absolutely to your point, when we started developing WiseTalk, uh, you know, in, in, and, and actually had the product running uh, early in 2012, you had products in the United States like Yammer. Uh, today you've got products like Slack, which is a tremendously powerful platform in itself. But the one thing that... Um, people in developed worlds don't understand is emerging markets. So you speak to many Americans and Americans will tell you that Africa is a country, not uh, not a continent. And one thing Kharos and I realized very early on was that there are a number of technological barriers that organizations and individuals face in this country. And if we use the metaphor of an iceberg, the top 20% typically white collar worker has access to smart devices, he's got access to an email address, he's got access to the web, and he's got access to data. And typically he can afford the smart device and he can afford the data. And and that top 20% is standing on an invisible glass floor and he's looking down at 80% of his employee base, typically the blue collar worker. And he knows he needs to engage with these people. Again, coming back to what I was talking about, the heart, I mean about the heart and the, and the mind and the hands. And and what they call that in theoretical terms is the psychological contract. And what we've created is the ability for an organization to engage with any level of employee on any device. Um, so if you're walking around with an old Nokia 3310, we have the technology that allows an organization to engage with you and for that individual to engage back to the organization. It is a linear conversation, so it does not allow for the blue-collar worker to chat amongst themselves. Um, it's saying, I'm going to need some things from you as an enterprise over time, and that data that you feed back to us is going to improve our working relationship. We've also brought gamification into the system, so you know, at the choice of the enterprise, we can, you know, we can launch a campaign. It's also multi-language, so we have content providers in the back 
um, that do physical translations of uh, into Kosa, Sutu, Zulu, English, and Afrikaans. So an, an employee gets his comms uh, on his mother in his mother language, uh, which which is really important, specifically for the organisations that we're dealing with. And you know, as we're getting feedback, that data is provided back to the enterprise. Uh, and let's management make coal-faced des- decisions based on the data that is being fed back. So we can completely segment worker groups into any way or form so that the, the data, the, uh, the kind of comms that we're making is to an individual. He knows who he is, and over time we're looking to improve the psychological contract to re-engage and build trust in an organization. Again, statistically, highly engaged organizations have a, a positive 20% total shareholder return over a three-year period, and a negatively engaged workforce has a negative 10% uh, effect. So, and, and those attributes relate to ab- rates of absenteeism, rates of shrinkage, staff turnover, all of that. And we believe that over time with, uh, with our advisory um, team, that we look to, to specifically target certain attributes within a business um, and that we start measuring through business intelligence how we're going to affect that uh, in reduction. So how do we reduce absenteeism? How do we reduce shrinkage? How do we – all of these kind of elements. But the base of that is, is trust. And how do we re-engage trust in in business? We're taking a quick break to remind you of Audible's pretty awesome offer to you, a listener of the African Tech Conversations podcast. They're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Personally, I recommend David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants by Malcolm Gladwell. It's a great read, but you can pretty much download any audiobook of your choice for free by trying audible.com. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash African Tech. That's audibletrial.com slash African Tech for your free audiobook. Now back to the conversation. I'd like to understand how it is you make money doing that, you know, helping organizations roll out all this awesome software that gets them, uh, you know, reinforces trust in their business and hopefully trickles down to the bottom line somehow. Uh, what's the model? Doing a software startup is not easy, right? And um, it has to, you have to be agile. You have to have many iterations. To answer your question, um, we do it on an annuity base. Uh, it's done per user on a sliding scale. And obviously, as the user base goes up within organizations, that sliding scale drops dramatically. But it's literally an annuity uh, per month over a 12-month period. And so who are your competitors uh, on the continent and abroad? Are there people uh, – you mentioned Slack, of course. Um, who, who might be hoping they could buy you one day, maybe even? Hopefully Slack or Microsoft. I don't know. I think the – the real view that we've taken, uh, and I really like using metaphors. So, um, if we had if we had developed our product to look over an imaginary wall into Silicon Valley, it would be a, a space that we couldn't compete in. Quite frankly, you look at Slack has raised five hundred and forty-eight million dollars. Uh, you look at the powerhouse that bought uh, Yammer, which is Microsoft. These are things you can't compete with. But again, to my earlier point around, a lot of developed worlds consider Africa a country and not a continent. It means they don't understand our people, uh, and, and by that I mean that very broadly. But the reality is that number of the organizations we deal with, and we do understand it's changing, and, we, and, and I'll get there, but between 70 and 86% of those workforces are still on feature phones. The other problem is that people here in Africa typically don't have an email address. 
those platforms need to have an email address to authenticate. Even Facebook needs an email address to authenticate. We've built technology that allows you to authenticate into an enterprise on a cell phone number. And it authenticates straight back into an HR system. So you know who you're dealing with and it deals with what we call joiners and leavers. So those, those file uploads happen uh, in real time. Um, we know that if individuals come into the system, they'll be uploaded and automatically segmented into the worker groups that they're in. Uh, and if a person leaves, their comms shut off immediately. There's no way for them to access the ecosystem. And is what you've just described proprietary, or is it is it something Slack could decide, hey, let's go do that in Africa? Yes, it's something that they could possibly decide to do, but hopefully they'll come and knock on our door first. Um, look, obviously, that is that is a business risk. You know, these, these guys are... Uh, are extremely powerful because of the amount of resources that they've got available. Um, but that being said, you know we've uh, we've got a patent pending on our product. We've got an amazing team. We're proudly South African. There's no way that I'll ever ever let my code be written any or let our code be delivered or done anywhere in the world. We've got a team of 20 amazing coders and uh, and a team of six highly motivated uh, advisory team and professional services. You know, and this thing is about the software, but at the end of the day, you know, we're in this to try and see how we can, how we can over time uh, elicit change in, in organizations. But uh, your question is, is valid uh, and it is something that does, does keep me up a little bit at night. But I think the misunderstanding of an emerging market from a lot of developed uh, players, you know, maybe they don't consider it relevant yet, um, but our thing is first mover advantage uh, and if we can really scale quickly, which we're, which we're doing right now in various verticals, then then hopefully we're going to grab hold of it. That sort of understanding or knowledge or market knowledge often doesn't get translated onto balance sheets very often. And to me, that's probably what's going to make it pretty hard for anybody, including Slack, to <laughs> come and do anything quite like you doing it the way you're doing it. From your li- your lips to God's ears. <laughs> but yes, I think I think the reality of it is is that you know the market technology market is highly competitive and. Uh, you have to remain agile. I mean, if we look at where we started as a business to where we are today, uh, it it has shifts. Uh, you know, in terms of what you just mentioned around pricing, we've we've made you know a number of iterations about how this thing should be dealt with in the market, how we should price it, um, and and how we're going to take it into customers. And obviously, as we get you know big, you know, as we get great brands attracted to our product, and there's empirical evidence around what our software is doing in those environments. Uh, it makes that the next sales cycle shorter and it makes it easier. Um, but it's still hard. You know, it's still it's still a difficult journey. So talk me through your business development cycle because that's the next thing I'm interested in. You said you were in the Middle East. I don't know if you were there on business. Um, I'm also curious about how uh, deep into the continent uh, you become, what your footprint looks like, uh, but also who's biting? What what sort of clients are going? Hey, we need this, you know. And how long is it taking to to sell them on the value? Another great question. I think uh, when we started Wise Talk, um, I think it would have been considered more a nice to have product because it was dealing really just in that twenty percent space that I described earlier. But over the last eighteen months, with us now really identifying how do we get to a hundred percent of an employee base, it now becomes a must have product. Um, so there are various verticals that we've uh, we've identified that we want to go into. Uh, number one is mining, where we've had a number of, of really good successes over the last uh, eight to nine months. The other one is retail. The other one is healthcare. Uh, um, you know, and then there's oil and gas. There are a number of others. Um, th- there's an element of our business, obviously, that we feel that we're going to be able to do ourselves. Uh, but your point around the Middle East is that I'm building our channel partnerships now in in the in the MIA region. Um, 
for those guys to resell our products in those areas. So coming back to something you mentioned in passing, is have you found a direct correlation between the adoption of your software, clients who take it on board? And you mentioned trust is one of the big key things that a lot of these firms are. <laughs> uh, I'll create a hypothetical situation. I can think of one or two m mining companies in South Africa right now that might have serious trust issues with their staff. Um, but beyond that, business is about money. Uh, are you seeing uh, a direct impact to bottom line uh, following the adoption of your software? So to say that there's a direct impact yet, uh, it, it's too early to tell. Um, I mean, one of South Africa's biggest gold mines has been using our platform now for the last eight months. And he did not tell me that leading into this. I had no idea. I must, I must have skills. <laughs> so um, we've, um, we, we're seeing tremendous levels of engagement. We're seeing, you know, there's a social element that we're starting to deliver soccer scores to guys based on the soccer teams that they support. It's really, and, you know, we're going to be, you know, enabling payslip delivery on a guy's mobile device. We're going to enable him to apply for leave based on the leave days that he's got available or she. Um, and as, you know, as we're building out this empirical evidence, it's really providing richness. But your point is very valid. You know, the South African mining industry, uh, I think up to about 15 or 20 years ago, employed a million people. They're down to 400,000 people. And, and the unfortunate thing is with many businesses is that they look at, as a, at a business as an income statement. So they look at driving out costs. They look at reducing people. They look at all sorts of things. And to your point earlier, Andelia, I think businesses need to look at balance sheets more. And by that, I mean, you know, stop looking at quarter by quarter performance or, you know, every six month performance. Have a look at what your five year performance could look like if you had a highly engaged workforce as opposed to a disengaged workforce. Obviously, there is an element of risk, but I mean, our software is a rounding error uh, at the bottom of, of, of an expense statement, you know, and the view is give it a chance and it's not going to be a short term thing i can't come to you and say look within 3 months you're going to see you know complete uh, complete change but certainly what we're seeing out of a number of the clients that we are engaging with is that there is things are improving you know there's uh, there are attributes which are coming back where we're seeing that uh, and even the feedback from management say look this is this is making a difference so um you know hopefully it it'll continue would i be right in saying that's pretty much what uh, a pitch meeting to a large client might sound like some, some of what you said yeah look i think the it's exactly that i think the the view is obviously that if people realize that we've got great brands associated with us we were also very fortunate that late last year in venfin uh, division of remgro invested in us so you know when i would pitch usually it would be to say well what does your own balance sheet look like you know okay so you guys going to be here in 12 months and when you say that remgro are now a partner in the business um, you know, it, it obviously it adds to your credo, uh, and they've incidentally been been amazing. You know, in terms of shareholder and and their assistance in terms of us getting into you know the front row of some of the investments they are involved in has has really helped us. Yeah, and about twenty percent of your business went to them. Yeah, exactly. We did a twenty percent equity sale last year. Yeah. That brings the investment you've managed to secure for your business to about twenty million rand. Is that correct? Uh, we're at uh, over thirty million rand, so th three million US dollars. Yeah. In continental terms and South African terms, certainly for a tech startup, really, really impressive. But as you pointed out, you know, uh, in Silicon Valley terms, not amazing. That said, um, your thoughts on, you know, that process of securing uh, venture capital. Uh, what is it you probably know now that you didn't when you started out about what it takes? What sort of advice could you give to someone in your position who, who might be in a position in a position now you were in? 2009 knowing what you now know what sort of advice and 
ponderings can you sort of share around that? So your earlier, your very early question around, you know, how high school was for me, the one thing that I was always, that I always believed intrinsically in was networking. Um, I was very fortunate in my last business that I was brought into YPO, into the Young Presidents Organization. Uh, I've just made it into Endeavor globally. Um, so the whole thing for me has always been network effect. It's it's something I believe in immensely, even if you set up, you know, a guy wants to see you and you don't really see that there's a point to a meeting. Invariably, when you leave that meeting, you think, well, that was that was really worthwhile. So, you know, I'll take you back to the beginning of 2012, uh, you know, finishing off um, my EMBA. Uh, go to a talk by Dave Duarte. Incidentally, I meet up with a guy that I was working with uh, in Endeavor, sorry, in Enablus. And Enablus is a non-profit organization that gets sponsorship from Canada uh, for young up, up, upcoming uh, entrepreneurs in the townships. And I was on the advisory in terms of, you know, which business plans we'd accept and which ones weren't. Uh, and then through this guy, I met Oliver Drews, who uh, was a very successful banker from South Africa, who had moved to the East and had come back. And Oliver's whole thing is that he's he knows a number of really high net worth individuals. Um, and I met him with uh, with Prem at a coffee after Dave Duarte's thing. And you know, Oliver said, if you ever need some capital, come and chat to us. And a year later, that's exactly what I did. And um, he loved the story. He realized that there was a considerable management experience behind wh what was involved, you know, and again, experience counts, you know, so we had a full business plan, a full investment memo, um, and, and in a very short period of time, he raised, you know, he raised some good money for us. We thought it would be enough, but it wasn't. Uh, we did two more rounds with the Angels, and then uh, and then we did the round with Remgro last year, but I think... Firstly, believe in networking uh, and work hard at it because it's only through networking that you're going to meet people. In addition, you need to be very clear on your business case. You need to you need to know your story. You need to come over with passion, uh, and you need to know your numbers. and uh, And if you fall down on any one of those elements, unfortunately, in South Africa, venture capital does not really exist. You know, guys are either going to skin you completely because of a lack of business knowledge on your own part, but secondly, that this that capital really is not freely available. And uh, and I was very fortunate that I could go and speak at the right level. You know, I mean, uh, Arthur Gillis at Protea, when he, when he still owned Protea, was one of our first clients, and he was amazing. Um, you know, we had we had uh, an instance running inside Discovery, and it was, it was really early on to get great brands associated with use case of your product, Cash Crusaders as well. You know, I know the owner of Cash Crusaders personally. And, you know, to get those small wins initially – obviously provides evidence to investors that there's got to be something here um, and to provide use cases around how that software is being used over time just emboldens it um, you know obviously you go through some uh, you go through something you know when things don't work that you've got to make some adjustments um, and it's just the process of business but I think uh, overarchingly I believe power of networking and the network effect is what's going to really assist you from a client acquisition perspective but it'll also assist you in speaking to the right kind of people at the right kind of level because you can often waste your time with, with not speaking at the right level. We often have debates around you know, the definition of what it means to be a startup uh, specific to, to, to Africa and, and compare, you know, I'm of the mind, it's, it's a term that's often fraught with snobbery. And um, yeah, so our sister podcast, the African Tech Roundup, often you know, turns into a boxing ring around those issues. And what does, you know, get us agreeing more often than not is the fact that at the heart of what it means to be a startup 
uh, is either you know a business that's showing traction or achieving traction or cash flow or both your story sounds like you got you you enjoy traction before the money really started to flow what in your mind is more important in the context of a tech startup coming up traction cash flow and can you call yourself a startup without one of the one one of the two or or, or both look i think the uh that's another great question, actually. I mean, it's something we often vacillate with. You know, if you speak to overseas VC or, or US VC, then you've you've typically got a um, you've got a user growth that they're looking for. You know, you shun revenue. Um, you speak to South African investors, and they're going to want to see some revenue. So I'm sort of on the fence, although. Um, I think I think use if you're going to be and and what we're doing now is, is you know we're going to internationalize wise talk in in the next few months and it will require some additional capital but I think the view is if we can establish empirically that the market verticals that we've that we've gone into that we believe that there's relevance and we're seeing good feedback out of the growth and revenue w- will marry that being said though it's important for you to get your software being used inside business or outside in in you know in in the public because you need that empirical evidence to demonstrate how that addition how you're going to continue to grow but also provides uh comfort from your investors point of view to say look revenue may not be what you thought it would be but we're seeing that there's positive traction we're seeing that you're identifying yourself in various verticals and we're seeing that that is it that you know that that is growing over time and so in your case, your investors would have said, we like what we're seeing, or is it more we like what we're seeing, kind of, but we kind of like you, and we, and we think between the two things we're seeing, magic can happen. What was it for you? I think you'd have to ask my investors that. Um, look, I think the, the strength of the passion that we have as a team, and I think the, obviously the business experience that we have as a team in terms of how we've done things. And, and as I've said, we've made some mistakes and, and you, you know, you get up and you, and you, and you move on. Um, but you have to have an ultimate belief in what you're doing. And I think, you know, I think people will recognize if they speak to my team and I, they'll, you know, we'll, uh, we have to go for it. You know, we think we've got something very special. We know we've got something very special. Um, it takes longer than we thought. And uh, and it costs way more money than you think, um, but I think intrinsically, if your if your team believes in you as a leader, and you and your team believe in what you're doing, um, your investors will back you. And and obviously, as I've said, there are there are times when things don't go according to plan, but but we have an amazing team of investors, you know. And it's it's like a partnership. It's not uh, it's not like something where I iteratively uh, communicate with them from time to time. I'm very much the kind of guy now, which is very different to who I was when I was running my the, running the brick business, um, was that I believe that, again if I'm if I'm presented with a problem, you know some of my my board or all of my board are highly experienced business people who've done fantastically well in their various industries, and to get their feedback and to get their input has been hugely valuable to us. Now I know you probably don't see yourself as a sort of peer to the likes of twitter and facebook and that kind of thing in a, in a traditional sense there's definitely a huge social component and i think in the way you roll out uh to your corporate clients for the end user who might have a feature phone on in, you know in a gold field somewhere um you essentially are a form of what they'd associate with say facebook or that kind of thing and with that in mind um what are your thoughts um you know with the struggles at twitter and 
the incredible moves towards total world domination we're seeing happening at Facebook. And, and where do you guys see yourselves? <laughs> I suppose given what I've just said, you probably don't want to be associated with it at all. <laughs> so, I mean, you, uh, you know, Facebook is, uh, is an amazing business. I think that um, if people ask us who our clients are, our clients are not the enterprise. Our clients are the blue-collar worker. And, and how do you provide content to these human beings um, you know, somebody said to me the other day that what we do is we, we turn numbers into names. So typically you've got an employee number in these large businesses, but now we're turning it into somebody, an individual that you're starting to learn a lot more about as a human being. And so we deal in an enterprise space. And, and the other big differentiator is that this is not about a chat environment. This is not about, you know, sharing things with, you know, people in your teams or uh, obviously at the 20% up level, that's exactly what our software can provide. But this is linear engagement. It's saying, I've got something important to tell you, and you can provide me with feedback. We can reward you, and over time, you know, we can recognize individual performance, team performance, productivity, and all of those things, and then share that with the broader community. But remembering that everything is in the confines of a private ecosystem. But yeah, we, we're lucky that we're not playing in the same kind of realm as a Facebook, um, because I think, I, think you've got, I think you've got your work cut out for you if you are. And there's, there's always a resistance to change in organizations of any kind, even when you've won a decision maker over. And um, how do you deal with pushbacks, you know, technophobia from people, your platform, you've just eloquently explained are at the you know, grassroots level. And have you found that the, in some cases, uh, adopting your software uh, creates an even wider communication gap? maybe because of generational lapses or, or gaps or that kind of thing? What sort of negative issues have you observed in that space as you've rolled out? So the one thing if, you, uh, if you're going to deal in the enterprise space is that there are a number of pillars within an enterprise that you've, you've got to jump over. Um, the one is obviously we, we have to go and see C-suite to introduce our software. So typically a senior executive management. And if you get that by and it does make it generally quite a bit easier. But then you've got the, the pillar of IT, so in terms of security. Then you've got the uh, pillar of risk. Then you've got the pillar of compliance. And then you've got the pillar of specifically in the unions where um, they are very, very powerful. you know. And now that you go to an enterprise and you say, look, we've got this platform which allows you know us to engage with workers in a in a way that's going to improve everybody's situation. Actually, um, there's a lot of pushback um, because there's because of this level of of massive distrust, which which is pervasive specifically in that industry. Um, so it's a hard slog, you know. But I think once you get over the line, um, you're there. Uh, you know, there are a number of specifically in the retail sector that we're dealing with an amazing team of people right now you know it's 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 a very big uh africa-wide retail operation but they are just so progressive and and so entrepreneurial in their own behavior and in the way that they deal with us it's 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 been amazing you know and we we've got a pilot going out to one of their divisions in the next month or so so, so the various pillars are going to have various you know mountains to overcome but as we develop IP of our own about what works and what doesn't work, we will hopefully streamline those processes uh, very quickly. You know, to your point earlier around the mining industry, it is somewhat ironic that that everybody knows that communication breakdown caused what happened a few years ago, and uh, it's an absolute tragedy. 
um, you know, that you, you're sitting there with workers that are taking home a pittance and people seeing that, but they're not doing anything about it, I think is a travesty, you know, and, uh, you know, without being too bold to think that if they had our instance running, you know, some things could have changed for the positive. Um, and really, you know, again, this is obviously about running a profitable business, but for me, from a higher level of, uh, of abstraction, if we, if we can really change what happens in organizations in terms of trust and in terms of how we can make this engagement transparent and we can make it, you know, for what organizations need to be, which is great and, and hunting like a tribe. Sounds like politics definitely plays a huge role, whether at a micro or macro level. And um, perhaps, I mean, my question is, you know, in part about generationally, like a, a pushback against technologies they're not used to or um, a perception that this will add, you know, a, a layer of surveillance I'm not quite prepared for and I've never had for the last 40 years I've worked for this firm. You know, just simply going, I'm happy with my feature phone. I don't want a new one. I don't want... To understand how to use a computer, how, how much of that kind of pushback do you get? So, the the one thing is that firstly, it's an opt in, opt out. When when we go live in an environment, you know, there will be a broadcast goes out, or a guy will key in a a USSD code, or he'll get a link to a Mobi uh, or to the app, and he then accepts whether he wants to come in or not, or she. Um, and then obviously the qualifying criteria, which authenticates them into the system. One thing we're very clear on is, uh, and I learned this you know, while I was writing my papers for my EMBA, it's much more difficult to write a short letter than a long one. And by writing short instances, you do take care of the generational gap, right? And again, you know, we send it out in a way where if a guy's on a smart device or on a, a feature phone, he can read what he's being sent very easily, he can feedback very easily, and of course the multi-language factor. You know, so the guy now doesn't have to read it in English if his home tongue is Zulu Koza, then he can he will see this. And again, you know, if he needs help with reading, then obviously hopefully through the through his team he can be assisted with that. But we found very, very high uptakes and you know, the generational in the minds is obviously, you know, from senior guys in the minds that are obviously of an older generation to to the very young guys, um, the uptake has been more or less uh more or less the same across across the platform, across the worker groups. Interesting. And so it's downhill from here. <laughs> I'm sure you're glad to hear. <laughs> no, the interview's been great. Actually, I could carry on for another hour or so. It'd be great. Well, I'm glad you had fun. Listen, well, I'm going to ask you to put on your futurist cap real quick. Uh, interesting, you brought up the Nokia 3310, which this year is 15 years old, believe it or not. Wow. Okay. Well, that makes me feel really old. <laughs> Incidentally, it was my first phone, and in less than two decades, um, it's incredible to, to witness how far mobile telephony has come. And uh, I never would have thought then that Nokia would, you know, in 2015 be a faltering giant. I would never have thought that Africa would be leading the world in terms of, you know, the trend to mobile first and mobile only. And with your futurist cap on, try and predict which business models and or companies are going to be around in the next 15 years and which ones might just bite the dust and will wise talk be part of that future do you think well i hope we'll be part of that future dealing so i mean our, our plan is that by mid uh, first quarter 2017 to be at about a million paying users in the various businesses that we operate in i would think that if you're in a storefront retail environment i would be very nervous um, also banking i think banking uh, is going to go through a massive revolution whether it be peer-to-peer -peer or whether it would be, you know, just from, from a storefront kind of perspective. 
um, I would I would yeah I would be starting to change that business model um, quite significantly, and and also to be fair, uh, If you look at what Mpesa has done, it's identified a niche for an African population, which you know has been fantastically successful. Um, I think that there was a great paper recently written in Fast Company by Walter Bates, the head of the, the graduate school. Um, and his view is that human design applications, uh, of which WiseTalk falls under the umbrella of, is really where applications will need to go and do it from an Africa or emerging centric environment. You know, if you look at, you know, again, not that these are Africa centric products, but I mean, the stuff that we've developed here in South Africa and in Africa over the last five to six years has, has really been astounding, you know, and, and I think as South Africans and as Africans, we need to understand that it's, it's good enough to be here. You know, you've got a billion people, you've got 800 million handsets. Um, there are obviously complexities of dealing in this market as opposed to the developed market. But if you could see a future state of what African people and emerging market people may need um, and grab hold of that quickly, because, you know, as you said earlier, the competition that could come from the developed world can be hard, fast, and very ugly for one if you if you haven't read it properly. But I think... And it it gets me sometimes is that South Africans don't celebrate, you know, in people that have done fantastic, the Elon Musks of the world and, and all of that. You know, these are people that were, you know, typically born here. They were educated here. And it's actually a shame that they've had to go overseas to, to become the people who they are. And I think we as South Africans need to celebrate that much more because we have amazing skills here. That's the heart of the show, I think. The the idea that we we know where Bill Gates grew up and we know... <laughs> you know where you know Richard Branson went to school, and we even know when they dropped out of varsity, and when they just we know nothing about our own ecosystem and our own heroes and people who are really doing amazing things. And you know, thank you for being part of that conversation, man. Thank you very much for having me, Andelia. It's been great. Well, it's not quite over yet. Yeah, we're not done. I've got uh, some serious questions to ask you: rugby or cricket? Can't watch South African sport anymore because. <laughs> It depresses me most of the time, unfortunately. Um, if I had to choose one, it would be cricket. Yeah. Ski or swim? Swim. Well, that was an obvious one. And what are you reading right now? Uh, Elon Musk's book, actually. And are you into podcasts? I am into podcasts, actually. You know, I think that uh, I think that the, the new way, uh, the ability for you to download, and you know, I travel a great deal, so to download podcasts and to be able to listen to them, uh, replay them, uh, you know, for avenues of of you know of what you what you wanting to you know what you wanting to listen to and take notes on and and res- listening to interesting people i think uh, has been amazing there was a a really good uh, podcast recently by Stuart Butterfield the founder of uh, of Slack and if you listen to the conversation what i love about podcasts is the conversational style you know it's not really an interview it is somewhat but it goes into a lot more richness uh, and depth which i really appreciate Fantastic, and I know you're already listening to us. I asked you this off mic, and I'm glad you know. I'm glad I don't have to sort of send my people for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, finally, is there a question I didn't ask that you wish I had? Not really. I think the view around the emerging market play, I think, is 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 something people should be focusing on. Uh, I was in a very interesting conversation a week ago. Um, with one of the uh, the very high ups, uh, now retired NASPERS people in London, and he said, "If you don't build technology out of the U.S. or China, you're sunk." And uh, and my retort to that was the complete antithesis. I said, "I think that that is, you know, it, you, you, if you focus on smart guys, 
with smart attributes to what is dealing with emerging market issues, I think that's where the new game changer is going to be. Here, here. Thank you. Cheers, man. Thanks, Andile. We'd like to thank Audible.com for sponsoring this week's episode of African Tech Conversations. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial right now at audibletrial.com slash africantech. That's audibletrial.com slash africantech. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversation.